Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Some of you might be surprised we're not in Galatians. Uh, we're going to get into Galatians 5 next week with the fruits of the Spirit. But I felt led to preach to you the sermon I preached in Watertown last week, especially after listening to uh, Mark Phillips' sermon that uh, he delivered to the church, uh, a convicting message of reminding us of our great calling as Christians uh, to take the gospel to the nations and I want us to consider uh, that calling this morning. So if you have your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at verse 20 where we see a bit of our job description. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I wonder if, as a Christian, you feel confident as an ambassador for Christ. Why are you here? God wants to make an appeal to the world through you. Mark reminded us of this last week that we're called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Whether we're giving for the advance of the gospel or going, but we're all called to plead with people to be reconciled with God, even those around us here in Aberdeen. But I would bet that most of you have all sorts of fears about being an ambassador for Christ. There's a lot of reasons we might be concerned with this job we've been given. How can we make an appeal to a lost and fallen world? How can we, who might not feel comfortable being eloquent and sharing the gospel or speaking to people. How can God use us? Because this might happen. Imagine if you go to share with someone this week about Christ and they say to you, so you're a Christian, huh? Do you believe God is good? Well, yes, I believe God's good. That's what the Bible says. Do you believe God's all-powerful? Well, yeah, I believe God's all-powerful. Well, then why were little children drowning last week in Texas? What if we get asked that question as Christians? What are you going to say? Are we afraid? of questions like these? How about being laughed at for saying that there's only one way to heaven, there's only one way to have a relationship with God, and it's through trusting in Christ and Christ alone. 
every other religion's leading to an eternal hell. We live in a culture that laughs at this sort of thing. You mean to tell me that all these good people around me are going to hell because they don't trust in Christ? What are we going to say when someone asks us questions like that? I remember being in my world religions class in college, and we were going through all the different <clears throat> religions, Islam and Buddhism, and I remember a stab of fear coming into my heart thinking, I haven't even thought about this question. How do I know that my faith, that my family brought me up in, is the true faith? I never really looked at other religions to see how it stacks up. How would I answer that question? Well, I can tell you, as Christians, we have an answer. Our answer is Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful answer. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. You know, when Troy and I got to go uh, visit Mark in Africa and just come alongside him for uh, 10 days, uh, we got to see firsthand what Christ has to offer over Islam. You see, when we're going to share our faith with someone, we have to help them see reality. See, if you offer Christ to someone who has no problems, if they don't know what their dire need is, then why would they listen to us about Christ? Here's man's three biggest problems. If you're going to be an ambassador of Christ, you have to know what the Bible says about humanity's three biggest problems. First, we lack righteousness. Not only do we sin, we lack living a perfect life. And if we're ever going to be in God's presence and live with Him, we need a perfect life to offer up. We lack that. Everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, we're full of sin. So not only do we lack righteousness, we don't come with positive righteousness, we come with the baggage of all sorts of sin. And because of that, we're living under the sentence of the judgment of God. The wrath of God abides on us. We're by, by nature children of wrath, the Bible teaches we lack righteousness, we're full of sin, and we lack the power to change ourselves. When we were in those villages in Africa, I could get those who we were talking to to admit that God is good and God is holy and He's righteous. They said, yeah, that's true. And I said, is He just? Well, yes, He's just. So that means He's going to punish wrong. Yes, he's going to punish wrong. And then my question was, is what hope do you have then? And you want to know what they said? I don't know. We don't know that we're going to be saved. And I said, yeah, but what's your hope? 
And then they would point to the five pillars of Islam. You know, when you stack up Islam with Christianity, our hope is Jesus Christ. That's our answer. Theirs is a profession of faith in Allah. Obligatory prayer throughout the day. Compulsory, compulsory giving, giving alms. Um, missing, uh, what's the missing one there? Fasting at Ramadan and making the pilgrim to Mecca. And I would ask them, so how do any of these things offer hope for your biggest problems that you just admit you have. They did not have an answer. I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't go out as ambassadors of Christ is because we forget that our news is the best news, that it answers the biggest problems that humanity faces. And it brings them into contact with truth, we forget we have the best message in the world. So man's biggest problem is when they face God, they lack righteousness, they have sin, and they have no power to change themselves. When they face God, how many people are living in the reality that one day they're going to stand before their Creator? And they're God. To help them see that their biggest problem is if you will see him and give an account face to face. Hebrews 9.27 says this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's been appointed by God. It's going to happen. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus Christ is coming back for people who are eagerly waiting for him. And here's what I want you to think about. We will not go proclaim until we're praying, Lord Jesus, come. Until we begin to wait and pray, and eagerly desire for Christ to return, we will not go. The reason being is, you don't pray that prayer if you think you're already there. If you already think that you have it all, even though you're not seeing Christ face to face right now, if you already think you've arrived, that the kingdom of God has been totally fulfilled on this earth, then you might actually be afraid of the coming of Christ. The very opposite of what the New Testament teaches. Christ is coming for those who are eagerly waiting for him to come. We will not go and proclaim until we are praying, Lord Jesus, come. I can tell you, you need to be ambassadors for Christ. But until you taste 
and see and value Christ, you won't be an ambassador for him. You'll be an ambassador for something you treasure more than that. So this morning, the gift I want to give you is Jesus Christ. I pray that it inflames your hearts, that it causes your desires to so ooze out of you that you just can't help but share it. When was the last time you pondered in wonder the nature of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ? When was the last time you thought about what the Bible says about him? And wonder filled your heart so that you just oozed out on everyone else around you to tell them the good news of Christ. Let's pray that that happens this morning as we look to Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the nature of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm saying to you, go proclaim Christ. But you won't until you worship him. So we're going to look at his nature. We're going to proclaim his nature to those around us. We're going to look at his work. And then we're going to look at our union with him in Christ. The nature of Christ. Now this is simple in two parts. It's not simple that it's not exhaustive. But the nature of Christ is this. Jesus Christ is both God and man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. I'm going to show you some texts that show that Jesus Christ is God. Romans 9, 5. To the Jews belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Bless forever. Amen. It's just a simple statement that Jesus Christ is God. How about Colossians 1.15? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the Old Testament, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. In John 5.18, because of Jesus' words and work, here's, here's what they said. This is why the Jews, or here's what's said of Christ. This was why the Jews were all the more seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal to God. Jesus clearly made himself equal to God and made the Pharisees furious. John 17, 5 says, and 
Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, and now, Father, glorify me. God doesn't share his glory with anyone else. And Jesus Christ says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How about John 10, 30? I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're about to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. The nature of Christ is that he's 100% God. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And in the one person of Christ, those two natures don't morph into each other so that we don't have a man. Jesus Christ was 100% man. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, we read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It's God's son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's son was born of a woman. In Luke 1, starting in verse 31, we read, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, this is the angel speaking to Mary, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He shall be called the Son of the Most High. So Mary, you're going to give birth, but he's going to be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's Mary's son. It's God's son. He's the son of David. The great king of one from whom a better one is coming. Jesus was fully man. He got hungry, Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He got tired, John 4, 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to the town of Samaria called Sinhar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus got tired as a man. He was thirsty, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished on the cross, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And we know that he felt physical pain and that he died. Jesus Christ's nature is he's a God-man. 
implications of this. We're going to look at his work specifically in three points in a moment. But let me just give you a few texts to help you feel how important it is we have a God-man. In Isaiah 43.11 we read, I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. Now listen to me. God says, clear as a bell, there's no Savior other than God. This creates a huge predicament. God, how can God save sinful people? How can he do it? He can't just forgive them and lose his justice. But Romans 8.3 tells us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did something. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned and sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So God had to act. God did act, but amazingly, He acted by sending His Son who became a human being to come in our place. God must save. God must send the mediator. We're told in Isaiah 59:2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. There's a big problem humanity has. Our sins have separated us from God. And as you've heard me say many times, one of my favorite passages, Job 9, one, the most righteous man on the earth at the time, we know from Job. Here's what he says about himself. But I became afraid of my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come together to trial. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. Let him, this mediator, take his rod away from me and let not dread not terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in and of myself. Here's what Job's saying. What hope do I have I can't go to trial with God. He'll destroy me. I know I'm a sinner. If only one could stand between God and man and mediate, take his rod away, so that I wouldn't have to be terrified of him and of judgment for my sin, and then we could come together. Job was looking for a God-man. God must pay the price for sins. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become a human being so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We needed somebody that could be just like us as a human being to pay the price for the sins of human beings, but also be a worthy sacrifice. 
our sin was against an eternal God, eternal worth, the sacrifice has to be eternally worth the same amount. We needed a God-man. And fourth, we needed a God-man. Our God-man must represent the human race. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's speaking of Adam, so by one man's obedience the many may be made righteous. Humanity was represented in sin by Adam. Because Adam sinned, everyone born after Adam was born sinful. Adam is his representative. Jesus came, according to this passage, to represent the human race in righteousness. Where Adam sinned, Jesus didn't sin. So he can stand as a representative for us. These are just four implications of the God-man. Definitely his work is in here, but specifically the Bible speaks of the work of Christ being one main thing that you can break down into three simple categories. Jesus came to save sinners. That was the work he came to do. You can't separate the nature of the person from the person's work. So we looked at Jesus' glory in being the God-man. Now, let's consider what he came to do. He came to save sinners. And he did it by living, by dying, and by raising from the dead and ascending to the Father. Jesus' work can be summed up as living and dying, only to be raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Remember man's three problems? We lack righteousness. That's why Jesus had to live. Jesus didn't come as a 33-year-old man that just showed up and died on the cross, but he lived under the law without sin. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This doesn't make Jesus less human. You might think, well, if Jesus never sinned, he's not human. He was made like us in every respect, except he never sinned, and that actually makes him more human. Keith Lambert rightly says, we will not realize the full potential of our humanity until we are free from the scourge of sin. He is the best representation of humanity that's ever existed. One day, when we don't have sin, we will be able to see how human beings were meant to glorify God and flourish in a way we can't understand now. Jesus had to live to create a gift for you. You and I are going to go face God one day, and we are either going to have righteousness or we're not. And Jesus lived 33 years of a perfect life to wrap that life up, that righteousness, that perfect life up, and give it 
to sinners. Anyone who would trust in him. Think for a minute. Do we have the right answer that the world needs for the three greatest problems? So far, we lack righteousness. Jesus has it. And the Bible tells us he will give it to those who trust in him. We don't have any righteousness. Almost everyone you share Christ with thinks they have righteousness. They think they're going to be able to go to God and say, look, I didn't kill anybody. I'm not as bad as most people. I'm at least in the top 80%. This is how people feel and they don't realize that one sin against an eternal God deserves eternal punishment because God's just. We don't have any righteousness. Here's what Paul says. If anyone was righteous more than us, it was him. He said, indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish. These are all of his religious works. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, I don't have any righteousness to offer. There's none there. One speaker says, the reason why Jesus said, don't parade your righteousness among men is because you don't have any to parade. We don't have a life worthy to represent, to put before God. It was only Jesus who got to hear, this is my son with him. I am well pleased at his baptism. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived to save you and offer you righteousness. But Jesus can't only give us the gift of righteousness. That's not our only need because we have a baggage of sin. We needed a God-man to earn perfect righteousness. And we needed a God-man to take away our sin. You know this well, so I'm only going to give you one verse. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Imagine it. All your sins that hopefully you're ashamed of and you realize your rebellion against God. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the deal. God's going to punish sin because he's a good judge. He's either going to punish your sin on the cross Pay for it himself in your place, or you're going to take it with you before him when you stand before him one day. My brother shared the gospel with a guy, a dying man, and after he got done with the gospel, the guy said, You know, Joe, I've lived my life the way I've lived it. I'm not afraid. I'm going to go offer that up. We'll see how it goes. Didn't realize 
that he needed someone not only to give him righteousness, but he needed sins paid for. Well, Jesus was the only sacrifice that would work. Because our sin has, if this is baseline right here, let's say neutral line here. Let's say God's word is eternal, as far up as you can go above neutral. Punishment for one sin against that God is as far down eternal as you can go. That's why it's eternal hell. So the only thing that solves man's sin problem is if we have a sacrifice that has eternal worth. And that can only be in the God-man, Jesus Christ. I tell you, if you go proclaim this gospel, there is no other equal to goodness. We have it. There is no other hope for humanity. Third thing, he, he came to live, he came to die, which takes care of our first two problems. And remember our third problem? We lack the power to change ourselves. So Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead so that you and I might have power not only to resurrect these dead bodies when they're laid in the grave one day, but power to live a different life now. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that the gospel, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and then on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to the disciples, we're told in Acts 1.9, that after he appeared and walked on this earth for over 40 days, and he speaking to the believers for the last time on this earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And he was carried up to the right hand of God to mediate for sinners. Now, think of this. Think of this. If someone died three days ago, we bring their body in and lay them here. Who has the power in this world to make that life live? Nobody does. We lack power. But God raised Christ. In another place, it says Christ raised himself. Not only that, if we did raise someone from the dead, how are we going to get him to the right hand of God? Into God's presence? We don't even know where heaven is. What are we going to do? Put them on a spaceship and send them up? God in his power, whenever the, the New Testament, almost every time the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it talks about the power of God. Because that's the only thing you can think of if someone's going to be raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God. Let me give you a couple examples. 2 Corinthians 4.14 And knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. How are you going to get to God? How are you going to live in the presence of your creator? Forever. How's that going to happen? You need righteousness. You need your sins paid for. 
and you need God to come get you and make your dead body alive again and raise you up to the right hand of God. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Romans 8.11 And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. How about Romans 7, 4? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Not only does Jesus' resurrection guarantee that your grave site will one day be a resurrection site where your body meets your spirit that's are already with Christ in heaven, not only is that promise given to the believer, but the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and the spirit that enabled that power, if that lives inside us, we can walk different, changed lives here and now. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only one that can mediate for man is the only one that can save man. In this one, as I read this in Keith Lambert's uh, book that I was reading last week, just uh, overwhelms me. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. You want to know one of the most comforting truths you'll ever find in the gospel? Is that when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he not only guarantees your, your resurrection, but right now, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and he never ceases to make intercession for you, Christian. You want to know how you can live a new and different life? Because Christ is praying for you. And I'm reminded of another text that says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Satan came to me, Peter, and he wants to sift you like me. But take heart, I have prayed for you. You think there's another one out there? There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved other than the name of Christ. Finally, we looked at the nature of Christ, the God-man. We looked at his work, his life, death, and resurrection. Now, we're going to look at how can a person have union with this Christ? This is all wonderful, but what if it's not for you and for me? What if we had to look at this amazing salvation story where a groom comes down and gets a bride and they go live happily ever after? But can you be in on it? How can you be in on the work of Christ? You want to know something? Every promise in the Old Testament to God's people and any good that God ever does for man 
he can only do for him in Christ. Do you know that? When you are reading your Bible this week, have a little highlighter. And I'll about guarantee you, every time you see a promise that you're like, I want to hang on to this, this is an amazing promise for believers, you're going to see that that promise is in Christ. It'll either say those words, or the sentence we'll be talking about, God has all these things for you in Christ. And the Bible teaches us that we don't get in on Christ's life because we were good enough. We get in on Christ's life when we realize we're not good enough. And we lose hope in our own self-righteousness. And we look outside ourselves for a Savior, for God to save us, a God-man to save us. And we look to Christ by faith. And then you can say with the Apostle Paul, I don't have confidence in my righteousness. It's all rubbish. But only in Christ and His righteousness. Let me just give you a couple examples. You get redemption in Christ. We could do this all morning long, and I'll spare you, but just go read and see it. We have redemption in Christ, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means found not guilty, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see that? You get in on redemption and forgiveness of sins in Christ. You get new life. You get to walk in a new way in Christ. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That means his death was your death. You were immersed into his death. And we who were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then verse 11, so you must all so you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How am I going to fight this addiction I've had my whole life? You don't have the power to do it. But in Christ, consider yourself dead to sin. Walk by faith. Believe that Christ can empower our new life that's beginning to birth. Uh, time isn't going to let me go through all this. The love of God is in Christ. Uh, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, eternal life comes from Him. In conclusion, I want us to consider, first of all, in an honest assessment on your life, if Jesus Christ came back right now, 
would you say, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been praying for this. Jesus is coming for those who realize he really is their only hope. Those who trust in him by faith. Have you realized this morning that he is your only hope? You will stand before him. I will stand before him. And if you're found in Christ, you will be found with God, with his saints forever. With all the benefits that come in Christ. So my prayer is that we could say of Sovereign Grace Church the same thing Paul said to the Thessalonian church in chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what he said. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So I'm asking you, go proclaim Jesus Christ. Paul's writing in this church saying, not only has Christ sounded forth from Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we are not in need, or that we need not say anything. He's saying, your life, your trust in Christ is blasting out there so that we get there and they've already heard about the power of Christ. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn from turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come I love that he says it's sounding forth Jesus Christ is sounding forth from you that you've turned from idols to God and you're waiting for his son from heaven I believe that if we're praying Lord Jesus come and we're thinking about this glorious Christ we have that the world doesn't have I think we're going to start going I think we're going to start proclaiming Mark said last week how can we sit on this wonderful news that we have when people around us are dying with no hope and we have the answer inside us that you can have union with Christ by faith in Him, not in yourself. Best news in the world. I pray that that will be true for us. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who came and lived and died and rose again because you knew that's the only thing that could save us from, from our sins. Father, I thank you that we have answers to why Jesus is the only way and to why there's floods. Father, I pray that as we see suffering in the world, we remind people that Jesus Christ entered this world and suffered even more because he loved us. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.